by asking why a sermon on vows. Uh, In today's world, uh, we have little use for vows. And and in fact, perhaps the only time uh, that you ever run into them in the wild is when someone is taking a vow at a wedding or perhaps, unfortunately, you have been called to the courthouse and placed under oath. Uh, And on those occasions, uh, you are participating in what strikes us often as an antiquated practice. Uh, No doubt, though there are these remnants of vow-taking in our world and in our society today, many in the church are not accustomed to this practice, particularly when it comes to the taking of membership vows. Uh, I have myself joined my own fair share of churches over the years, and uh, I have before joined churches where all that was necessary is that you told them that you wanted to join and you filled out a sheet with your personal information. Uh, Maybe you have had that experience as well. You're going to find that the way we do things differs quite significantly from that. And, And one of the purposes of this sermon is to help you wrap your mind around why that is. And one of the reasons that it is this way is is that when we look back across our history, we recognize that it has not always been the case that vows and the taking of oaths and swearing were considered so strange. Consider, if you have picked up a copy of our Confession of Faith, that the Confession of Faith contains an entire chapter on the taking of oaths and vows. This was something which was on their mind. Because as it happens, the divines who helped formulate that Confession of Faith stood up on every, every Monday morning and took an oath before uh, the civil magistrate. So no matter how strange it might seem to us to be talking tonight about vows, about oaths, about swearing before the Lord, if you're ever interested in joining this church, there will come occasion when eventually you stand here in front of the congregation and you take vows before the Lord and before those gathered here. And when you do so, you will want to make these affirmations and promises in clear conscience. Now don't get too worried. Uh, The things which you will be asked to vow, and if you didn't see them, there are handouts containing the vows over on the table there. Uh, These are things which any professing believer who would want to join this church should be able to say yes to. But still, we want you to know what it is that you're doing when you do it. And so, why a sermon on vows? Well, because over the next five Sundays after this one, you will hear sermons which speak to the content of each of the vows taken in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So if vow taking is in your future, then it is an appropriate time for us to consider and to reflect upon the nature of vows and vow taking. And and in doing so, we want to ask and answer three questions tonight. First of all, we want to ask, are Christians even allowed to take vows? Are Christians even allowed to take vows? Second of all, we want to ask, what is the purpose of taking vows? And finally, how should we take vows? Now we'll try to hit those first two questions quickly, because it's really on the third point, the third question, where we're going to dive into the text which we've read this evening. But first we ask, Are Christians even allowed to take vows? 
And this is a question which we must address because speaking frankly, there are certain passages in the Bible which seem to indicate that the answer is no. Two major examples. The teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and of James in his epistle are the elephants in the room when it comes to discussion of taking oaths and vows. And just so we lay all the cards on the table, I'm going to read both of those passages for you now so we know just what the potential objections to this practice might be. First of all, Matthew 5, 33-37. Here's what Jesus says. We read it this morning. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is reinforced then in the letter of James in chapter 5 verse 12 where James says, But above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I think you can understand why many have read these words and concluded that plainly, Christians ought not partake, participate, be involved with taking oaths and vows at all. Doesn't Jesus say, do not take an oath at all? Doesn't James say, do not swear? They do. But when we pay close attention to the details of those texts... One of the things that becomes apparent is that Jesus and James were addressing pastoral problems which were prevalent in the local situations in which they found themselves. These are pastoral problems that perhaps we do not have to deal with today. You see, it seems that in the first century, people were taking oaths and vows and swearing Constantly. Notice the language of the text. People were swearing by heaven. People were swearing by God's throne. People were swearing on the earth. People were swearing on their own head in order to give weight to their words. Perhaps a a modern equivalent today would be, you sometimes will hear people say things like, I I swear on my mother's grave that what I'm saying is, is true. That seems to have been a very prevalent practice in the days in which Jesus and James were writing. But notice what's not mentioned in the text. What's not mentioned in the text is that these people were swearing by God. They were not swearing by God. They were swearing by lesser things in the hopes that at the end of the day they would be able to work their way out 
of the oaths and the vows which they had made. By swearing on these things which were less than God, you were giving yourself cushion. That you were giving yourself an out if you needed it. So it seems that these were the particular problems which Jesus and James were approaching. And they say to those facing these problems, all you should need to say is yes or no. Just tell the truth. And knowing the context then, and comparing with Scripture with Scripture, I believe that we ought to understand these passages which we have read as strong, vehement critiques against the prevailing practice in the first century and a perpetual warning against flippantly taking oaths and vows. However, I do not believe that we can interpret these as blanket condemnations for all time Upon the taking of oaths and vows, I'll give you three reasons. First of all, the Old Testament permitted them. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 10, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So we have here an example in the Old Testament wherein the Lord is explicitly commanding His people that if you swear, you are to swear by name. It was, a, it was a permitted practice in the Old Testament with the caveat that the thing upon which they were to swear was the name of the Lord Himself. So the Old Testament permitted them. Second of all, Paul used them in his letters. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, but I call God to witness against me. That's the language of a vow. That's the language of oath. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from from coming again to Corinth. When we take a vow, we are saying, I say this in the presence of God. I, I swear it before him. And so Paul joined in the practice. But perhaps... The most convincing reason is that God himself took them. We've read the passage already tonight, Hebrews chapter 6. I'll just remind you of what we read in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So... If the words of Jesus and James are considered absolute, all-time, blanket condemnations of the practice, then we've got big problems. Because the Apostle Paul engaged in the practice, and God himself did as well. So when Scripture is compared with Scripture, we discover that the taking of vows and oaths is permissible, though most certainly it ought to be done with great caution. And frankly... It ought not be necessary. And that leads us very naturally into our second question tonight, which is what is the purpose of taking vows? Why is it that we find them necessary in the world in which we live? Well, here I quote from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 22, paragraph 1. That's where you find our confession talking about vows. It says this, A lawful oath is a part of religious worship wherein... 
Upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the, th- the truth or falsehood of what he swears. To put it another way, to take a vow is to call upon God as witness in order to provide a guarantee of the truthfulness of what we are saying. A guarantee of the truthfulness of what we are saying. Why does this work? Well, for the Christian believer, it works because we have the word of God, we have the law of God, and when we read that law, we come to a text like the third commandment. We've read them so often since we began worshiping here together, and we know the third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless. He takes his name in vain. So, If to swear scripturally is to swear by the name of the Lord. And the third commandment says that those who take the name of the Lord, their God in vain, will not be held guiltless. The idea is that you will want to avoid taking his name in vain by swearing falsely because you know the Lord will judge. That's why we take Vows, that's why we take oaths, that's why we swear. Because we're binding ourselves before the Lord, more strongly saying, in essence, Lord, if I am lying, judge me. If I am lying, don't hold me guiltless. Punish me, O Lord, if I'm a liar. As Pastor David Gibson, who wrote a little book on Ecclesiastes, puts it, Vows, oaths, and swearing all exist because we're untruthful. We naturally shave the edges off what really happened and shade the details as we fill someone in. So in oaths and vows, we have a way of of calling God as witness in order to hold us accountable to the words of our mouth. We might boil it down in this way and say that oaths and vows exist in order to help us tell the truth in a sinful world. They exist in order to to keep us accountable as those who continue to struggle against the sin which dwells within us. They exist to remind us of the third commandment which calls us to speak the name of the Lord uh, in, in ways that please and honor Him and reflect His truth. So, if we're allowed to take vows, if vows are useful in keeping us honest, then how should we take vows? Uh, again, in future weeks, we're going to consider the actual content of the vows which members of this denomination have to take. And, and so when we do that, then perhaps we can give some more specific application for what obedience to each of those particular vows might look like. But what we're interested in tonight is, is to set some guardrails for ourselves. What should vow-taking in general look like for the faithful Christian believer? And it is for this reason that we look to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Because this particular section of the book is chock full of guardrails 
for the ways in which we speak before the Lord. The first thing I want you to notice tonight from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is that our vows should be made cautiously. They should be made cautiously. We read there in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven. You're on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. The author of Ecclesiastes up to this point in the book has been considering, has been musing upon the many vanities that this life has to offer us. Seeking out worldly wisdom. Living a life of self-indulgence. Working hard for a dollar. And the author has to this point shown that all of these things are vain in their own way. Because at the end of the day, they will all come to an end when we die and go down to our grave. And then what will it matter? It's all a vanity. However, as we begin chapter 5 of the book of Ecclesiastes, we are now coming to a topic. We are now coming to a subject which is not vain. We now come to a section which talks about the worship of God. Worship which begins here in the present and continues on into eternity. That's the sort of thing that lasts. That's the sort of things that matters. And so the author here is careful to provide us from guardrails for how to do so because remember, we're sinful people. And as sinful people, we have the propensity, we have the ability to take things that are not vain and to turn them to into a vanity. So we're told in these first three verses that our fundamental posture, you see, before God, when we come into His presence, ought to be one of listening rather than speaking. This is reflected in the New Testament. It's not what we're told to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Again, that's James who tells us that. that we're to guard our steps when we come before our holy God, rather than presumptuously and recklessly acting, like a, I just said, like a bull in a china shop. That's how we act sometimes when we come before the Lord, but it ought not be so. The text tells us here that even a fool can offer a sacrifice. But to offer that sacrifice carelessly or unthinkingly is to commit a great evil. These first three verses go so far as to suggest that even in our prayer, our words ought to be few. And Jesus seems to pick up on this thing in his teaching in the Gospels where he tells us that we ought not be like the Pharisees who pile phrase upon phrase in hopes that because of the abundance of our word we'll be heard and the Lord will answer. No, he says, he says, be not rash with your mouth. Or let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Though through Christ we have open access to God, it is not as if when we speak to God, we're speaking to our good buddy who we can pat on the back. You're my pal. You're my friend. You know how we get along. God is on His throne right now. God is on His throne. He is encircled by the heavenly host who are praising Him now and forevermore, singing holy, holy, holy. It was when Isaiah caught 
that vision of God that what did he do? He understood himself to be what? A man of unclean lips. He shut his mouth. So we ought to let our words be few. Avoiding the endless speech of fools when we stand before God and speak. And if that's true of our speech in general, how much more when we apply it particularly to the subject of taking vows, for which the rest of the Scripture tells us that we ought to be very careful. Practically speaking, this means that you ought not be eager in this life to take more vows than are necessary. The taking of vows is not something that you should hastily rush into or take great delight in. No, when we do so, we are on dangerous ground, standing before a holy God in whose presence our lips are so often hushed. So our vows should be made cautiously. In the second place from this text, we see in verse 4 that our vows should be made submissively. Submissively. We read here in the text, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Many a time, no doubt, has man vowed something to God in hard times, hoping to win favor with the Lord, only to turn back when the burden is these. Lord, I will serve you. Lord, I, pro- I swear by your name that I will serve you if you will get me through this. And then he gets you through this, and, and suddenly you don't remember the vow that you've taken. Perhaps more common, man, many a, a man has, has taken a vow or, or promised something to the Lord or guaranteed something on his name and then turned back once he realized what he had gotten himself into. Lord, I know I promised, but I didn't know it would be like this. Lord, I said I'd do it, but you didn't tell me this is what my life would look like. Verse 4 reminds us that we ought to submit to the vows we make. If you vow something before the Lord, so long as that vow has not bound you to sin, you ought to do so with the intention of keeping the vow, even when it comes to inconvenience. Again, I quote, From our Confession of Faith, chapter 22, paragraph 4, an oath cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful, being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's hurt. The confession there, I believe, reflecting the teaching of Ecclesiastes, is saying to us, if you take a vow, if you swear an oath, as long as it's not requiring you to sin, you ought to do what you said you would do, even if you are now in a world of hurt because of it. Stand by your word. So when you take a vow before the Lord, mean what you say. Do what you say you'll do. Pay what you promise to pay. So, so as we look forward to the future, a possibility of taking church membership vows, don't take them hoping that they'll never matter. Don't take them with the expectation that this will hopefully never have any practical ramifications my life. No, when we vow, we ought to vow with the expectation that we will pay. So our vows are to be made submissively. Coming then to the third point, however, we see in verse 5 that our vows should be made voluntarily. 
Look at verse 5. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So on the, on the one side, if you take a vow, you better pay. But the writer of Ecclesiastes comes over on the other side and says, the alternative is just don't take the vow. Just don't take the vow. Uh, we're reminded here, again, the vows are voluntary. And no one here in this context is, is ever going to make you get up here and take vows. Now, again, the things that we ask you to vow when you come into membership are, I believe, things that any Christian ought to be able to vow in good conscience before the Lord. Uh, so I, I don't believe that in our church membership vows we're setting particularly high bars. Uh, and I hope that over the course of, of the next few months we will see uh, folks stand up here and, and take these vows. But again, no one's going to make you. No one's going to compel you to do this. So if you, if you look over those words, again, uh, perhaps if you've picked up at some point the book of church order, they're in there. Uh, I've also printed them out over there. If you read those and you don't believe those words, then you shouldn't take the vow. If you don't believe the words that you're speaking when you take membership vows, or if you do not intend to keep your word, it would be better for you to refrain from taking the vow altogether. That your vow is voluntary, but once taken, it ought to be kept. So move slowly to the point of taking vows, uh, not vowing something which you don't believe or which you don't intend to pay. That brings us to the fourth thing this passage teaches us about vows, and that is that our vows should be made sincerely. See this in verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? The text here teaches us that to take a vow rashly or insincerely is to allow our mouth to lead us into sin. It is to bring ourselves under the condemnation of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the teaching of James, and ultimately of the God who calls us not to take his name in vain. The writer of Ecclesiastes here imagines the sort of person who is called out for breaking their vow. Uh, we're, we're, we're given perhaps a picture here of someone who, who has not done what they said they would do. And, uh, and the messenger comes and says, you have not paid. And they say, oh, it was all a mistake. It was a misunderstanding. Uh, I was kidding when I said that I swore to the Lord that I would do those things. Uh, I didn't really mean to vow what I vowed. Again, it, it's a mistake. Uh, I hope that if you take these vows, that will not be you. Take your vows sincerely, because such a person who throws up their hands when confronted and says, I didn't really mean it, it was a mistake. Such a person, we're told here, comes under, again, the anger and judgment of God. Why should be, God be angry with your voice? And destroy the work of your hands. The idea here is that because of the lie you have told. The Lord is going to inflict punishment. Discipline upon uh, you uh, to a greater extent than we might expect. He judges the work of our mouth. And destroys the work of the hands. So our vow should be taken sincerely. Don't take... Take it in sincerely, later exposing what you really meant or what you really intended to do. Again, I quote Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 22, paragraph 4. 
an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. In other words, when you're taking an oath, when you're taking a vow, don't cross your fingers behind your back or wiggle your toes or, or, or whatever people do to signal that they don't really mean what it is that they're saying. Uh, you, maybe you do that as a joke between yourself and a child, but uh, you ought not do that between yourself and the Lord. And, and what foolishness it is, does He not already know your heart? Uh, the Lord knows whether you mean the vow the moment you take it. Maybe we will only see the evidence somewhere down the line, but the Lord knows the day you take the vow what's really in your heart. He sees what the rest of us cannot see. And that ought to leave us in a state of fear, godly fear, which is the subject of verse 7, where we see in the fifth place that our vows should be made fearfully. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. The point here is that the more our words proliferate and spread out and multiply, the greater the chance that we are plunging ourselves into the sort of vanity that the writer of Ecclesiastes condemns. Because God is a fearful God. We've talked about His holiness. We must also reflect upon His power, upon His might, upon His ability to punish the evildoer. To punish the liar. And so when we vow or swear before him. We ought to do so with a healthy dose. Of, fear, of the fear of God in our hearts. Knowing that he will hold us guilty. If we take his name in vain. The writer of Proverbs tells us. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we might put it this way. That we are to take vows wisely. As those who know the Lord. And his character. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 22, paragraph 2. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear. And therein, therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Told here in the confession that we swear by God's name because we know it's to be used with holy fear and reverence. And to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name is sinful. It is to be abhorred. We are to hate it. We're to recoil at the thought of calling upon the name of the Lord to put his seal of approval on our law. So we see here in this text. Not a contradiction to the teaching of Jesus and James. But really a reinforcement of the teaching of Jesus and James. That the oaths and the vows which we swear must be done so in complete sincerity before the Lord. Knowing that if we do not pay, His anger will be kindled. And this is surely... Uh, 
something which ought to drive us to Christ. This passage feels so heavy to us as people who break our word, who bend the truth, who, who stretch things to make ourselves look good. So when we read of these words and we consider the prospect of taking vows, that opportunity ought to be the occasion to expose our sinfulness and to drive us to Christ, knowing that it is only by His grace made available to us through the cross that we will be enabled to stand before a God who judges every careless word and says every errant thought. So this, this passage ought to drive us to tremble, to cast ourselves upon Him in complete reliance, in complete dependence as we take vows. Ultimately, at the end of the day, every vow that we take, every oath that we swear, we must say, Lord Jesus, help me. I know I cannot do it on my own. I'm dependent upon Your grace. I'm dependent upon Your mercy. Give me Your Spirit that I might do what I vowed. This is a heavy dose of law which ought to drive us into the arms of the gospel. Finding forgiveness for our shortcomings. And finding that forgiveness, we ought to be empowered and invigorated to go out more and more and to speak the truth with all sincerity. Making our yes, yes, and our no, no. So while restricted in the scriptures and rare in our day, the taking of oaths and vows is, we've argued, permissible for the Christian. We, we use such vows to verify and confirm the truthfulness of our words, binding ourselves to obedience, knowing that God will not leave broken vows unpunished. Nevertheless, such vows, we've seen here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, ought to be made cautiously, submissively, voluntarily, sincerely, and fearfully. So I would encourage you to keep these things in mind. As we begin to consider the content of each of these vows, keep these things in mind, knowing just what it is that we're asking you to do as you stand in sincerity before the Lord. And when we do such things, may the Lord help us all through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray.